Okay, so uh, <clears throat> we've had the, the, I also have a mic here that's being recorded. Uh, we have a, you've had plenty of time to take a look at my conflict of interest slide. Uh, <laughs> and you've probably also seen the wacky title that, uh, that I picked, Responsibility, Art, and Science of Intentional Extinction, De-Extinction, and uh, Aging, yeah. And so I'm going to mix together a little art and science and a little, uh, I guess, uh, ethics. Um, and uh, and, that's, and it's, it, it has to do with responsibility, how we decide uh, about <coughs> what we're going to be responsible uh, when we go forward. Some of my colleagues, very notably, uh, say that they'll worry about it when they see dead people in the street due to their technology. Um, that's one approach. So here's a... Here's a Here's some things we've made extinct uh, and de-extinct. We made smallpox extinct and uh, de-extincted 1918 flu um, and published both on the internet for anyone to uh, do whatever they want with it. Um, can we preserve current biodiversity using ancient DNA? Can we save, uh, <clears throat> if we save a million lives per year by engineering wild mosquitoes, should we? I've actually had people tell me that they think that it's a bad idea from a population standpoint. Uh, ditto for uh, um, saving lives by transplants and uh, reversal of aging. Um, and uh, should we genetically engineer ourselves? Is random mutation uh, intrinsically better than a design mutation? I think I've heard that argument many times. And we're going to come back to the slide uh, towards the end, but I just wanted to s see us here. These are some case studies, 13 case studies um, that we could talk about. And really what I want to do is encourage conversation. Towards the end, there'll be plenty of time for discussion, so save up. Or you can interrupt me, too, if you want. Uh, but number one on this thing I will talk about, which is that scientists are often perceived as being enthusiasts. That is to say that if I bring up something as being possible, or just answer a journalist's question, is such and such possible, that if I say that yes, it is possible, that means that I am advocating that we should do it. Um, that there's been some humor, humorous consequences of saying that something's uh, not impossible. Um, so, so the theme here, uh, in fact, all the way back in this, this is a grid of reading, writing, and arith arithmetic, LC, ethical, legal, and social implications, and then the various organizations. And so that's the, we'll talk about reading first, what possibly could go wrong with reading. Um, and so we have is, um, Obama has launched a few initiatives. These are actually kind of clever games where you take existing programs and give them new names. Precision Medicine and the Brain Initiative are two of those that, that we've been quite close to, um, and the Genome Project before that. Um, but what's happening is we're getting miniaturization now to the point where we have uh, these little, uh, we started thinking about this in the 80s, but we now have these uh, miniature sequencing devices that are about the size of a memory stick, uh, which are uh, not yet at the point where they can do like real-time sequencing as you're walking down the street, but uh, they are—they show you where it's going—a nine, a 70-gram device, and so you can imagine something that uh, um, can tell you whether a particular room is a good room to because whether it has uh, the latest uh, H1N1 flu or what have you, and decide whether you really want to go to the laboratoire 
uh, tonight or not <coughs> for your meal. Um, and then I draw your attention to PG Ed. Uh, there'll be more about that in a moment. This is an edu education project that my uh, the wife Ting Wu started. And this is the story of why this is such a dramatic uh, time. Um, not just reading DNA, but, but, but many biotechnologies are moving, advancing faster exponentially uh, and faster than electronics, which already is a pretty breathtaking rate. Um, am I blocking your view at all? Uh, um, and so we've come down from a billion, three billion dollars, which could buy you a pretty, pretty nice building uh, or a genome back in the 90s and 2000s. Um, to one that's now comparable to your cell phone and, uh, and a subscription for a few years. Um, people still balk at this, and we'll come to that in a moment. Well, this moment, which is, is human genomics useful for anything today? Okay, it's, it's getting so that it's affordable to the kind of, especially to people in this room or in industrialized nations, but how many people here have uh, their genome, uh, high quality, not, not, not like 23andMe, but a really a genome. All right, awesome, there's two of us in the room. So I would say that's evidence that it's not useful, right? Because we're all human, we all have genomes, but we don't have our sequence, so. But let's talk about why it might be useful anyway. Uh, and that is, sort of depends on where you are in your life. If you are not yet conceived, show of hands of here is not yet conceived, uh, then uh, your parents can help you out by genetic counseling. Um, and this has led to, this and some of the few further things down the list have led to near elimination of Tay-Sachs in some populations where it can be as high as one in 30 um, of people are um, carrying this disease. And then um, a little later in life, uh, you'll have uh, in vitro fertilization. Uh, where uh, some people will go through that and they can do diagnostics at that stage. And then there's prenatal non-invasive testing. This is actually the, the fastest growing diagnostic in the history of medicine, as far as I can tell. Um, there, just a few years ago, there were, nobody really had done it outside of research, and now there are millions of, of uh, families that have used this. They mostly detect aneuploid, in other words, something that isn't in your family per se, but it happens, um, um, and so you can't you can't really do preconception testing on that. And then there's newborn screening. A lot of people are unaware that for decades, every baby born in hospitals in the United States and many other countries um, was tested uh, for up to 40 genes, and that's newborn screening. The one you may have heard of PKU, you see it on all the soda cans that say, uh, you know, watch out if you're phenylketonuric. Uh, because this has uh, aspartame. Um, I'll talk about the Beery twins in just a moment. As you go past newborn, there you'll have some children that, that you don't know what's wrong with them, and that's called a genetic odyssey. And you'll and you'll go from doctor to doctor, and they'll and the parents often blame themselves for it. And then finally, there's where we are: uh, these late onset uh, disease or adolescent to late onset, and these in where you'll might have uh, cancer. So I'll just go through a couple of those scenarios. These are Beery twins. Um, I'm not their physician, but I did have met them, and they are wonderful, healthy uh, teenagers. Um, but when they were young, they were, they were, there was something wrong with them. They could barely stand up or talk. They could not focus. Um, 
school was out of the question. They were misdiagnosed with cerebral palsy and a bunch of other misdiagnoses, which is typical of the genetic odyssey. Um, eventually somebody, uh, you know, usually their parents are very uh, strong advocates. By the way, I'll, I'll be mentioning the names of people. It's not because I disrespect their privacy. It's because they and their parents decided that it was more valuable for society to talk about it openly. And uh, so anyway, uh, the, their parents and their uh, pediatrician decided to get a genome sequence, which was quite radical back when this was done. And it turned out they had a problem with their SPR gene, which is involved in uh, neurotransmitters. And so they take two nutritional supplements, which are on, you can find them in the shelf in, the, in, the, in your drugstore. There's absolutely no reason why you should be taking these things. I mean, I don't even know why they're on the drugstore. But there are many things like this that are in the nutritional department. But anyway, for these kids, it's amazing. It's they just complete transformation. Uh, but it's a very rare disease, and there you have it. So here is uh, John Lowerman. He uh, um, is, is a member of our uh, research project called Personal Genome Project, um, which uh, is in, in, invented, created uh, uh, to allow sharing of data. So his, his name and, and all his medical records and his genome are known. And in, in his particular case, uh, he, he's a journalist for Bloomberg, and he um, happened to have um, leg pains and scotomas, meaning dots in the retina, um, that were unexplained. Uh, interestingly, and this had nothing to do with our study, his physician thought that it might be genetic and did a, what a kind of a typical thing that, that, a, that a physician might do, is ordered one gene to be analyzed. <laughs> uh, now, you know, his genome has uh, like 30,000 genes and it made a pretty good guess, but it was the wrong guess. He guessed uh, factor five Leiden and in fact it was JAK2. When we did the whole genome, there was JAK2 gene and so now he's on aspirin for the rest of his life. So a uh, little more medical than the previous one, but still pretty uh, non-invasive. The, th the third example is more invasive, um, and this was really, Angelina Jolie did a great service for genetics in being uh, uh, out in public about her uh, breast cancer risk. And so she has a classic BRCA1 risk factor, which her physician said gave her 87% chance of uh, breast cancer if she didn't get surgery and uh, five, less than 5% after her surgery. Um, so a very often, this is, this is not something to be taken lightly. You wanna make really sure that this is the right diagnosis, but we're getting to the point with BRCA1 and 2 where this is a very reasonable thing to do, um, even if you don't have a family history. So many of these diseases, you can be the first person in your family um, because it can be a new uh, mutation or your parents can be carriers and not know it. So this is the personalgenomes.org and openhumans.org and we get together once a year, usually around DNA Day, um, sometimes in various parts of the world, uh, like, like the last one was in Vienna, um, but usually in Boston on DNA Day, which is April 25th and 26th this year. And, uh, it's now global, um, has been for a few years, starting in Boston and then Toronto, then Toronto and London, Uslan, uh, South Korea, Vienna, and New York City. 
And needless to say, they're all identified uh, by their faces, if nothing else, but they also have name tags. So it's a very unusual gathering of research subjects, uh, as well as physicians and scientists and so forth. Um, this is pged.org. That's my wife, Ting Wu, who, who started this about the same time we started PGED. I think she considered the antidote for PGED, uh, in that we were putting people at risk by uh, um, putting them in uh, their medical information in the public domain. Um, but we did educate them, and, we were, and we, one of the things that dis, dis, distinguished our project is rather than sticking a 12-page bit of legalese that they signed to protect the institution rather than themselves, um, we, we made sure that they were educated and passed the exam. But she gets even more serious about education, and they have uh, um, four main projects. One is uh, Quarterly congressional briefings. These are not lobbying, but actually um, ed purely educational, so that the uh, congressional staffers uh, uh, can go back uh, to the districts and talk intelligently about uh, genetics. Uh, high, uh, underrepresented minority and in some very poor and at risk uh, high schools, uh, uh, she and her staff go there to, um, to see what they're interested in, what their uh, uh, view of genetics is, and it's very, very different from uh, what you might think. And then she teaches teachers uh, about that. She works with screenwriters um, for TV and, and movies, and then finally there's MapEd, which is this thing here. So if you look up either pged.org you can uh, take a little quiz with five questions on it, on many subjects, uh, and, and put a dot on the, on the globe for where you are or where you would like to be. Um, so that was, that was reading, this is writing. Um, there are many applications of changing the genome, either writing it from scratch or editing it. Editing seems to be the buzzword these days. Um, and there's all these applications, agriculture to public health, um, organs, ecosystems. This is our most radical engineering project. We call it Recoli for re-engineered E. coli, which is a common gut bacterium, and one of the um, most famous industrial microorganisms. And what we've done is we've engineered the, the genome initially to change one codon. So the genetic code going from DNA to RNA to protein has 64 triplets of A, C, G, and T. So all the com possible three-letter combinations, 64 of them. We changed one of them. So it's every organism ever uh, grown is, uh, that survived uses all 64 codons somehow or another for something, except for this guy, which we engineered to, to free up one of the 64 codons. Um, so it's, in a way, it's more than a, n a new species of organism. It's a whole new branch of life because it doesn't use the 64th codon. And we're now in the process of making one that only uses 57 codons, so it's missing seven. And then those could be repurposed for new amino acids, the things that make your proteins. And they're tr truly genetically and metabolically isolated, which is a, a biocontainment safety feature. Um, because they're, you can make them addicted to or dependent on this new amino acid, which is not found in the wild. And finally, they're multivirus resistant, which I think is a really interesting kind of 
philosophically, you know, uh, which is uh, what if, uh, what, ha what happens when you make an organism that normally is extraordinarily sensitive to a whole variety of viruses if you now make it um, resistant to all of them. And E. coli has close to some kind of record for how many viruses will infect it. Um, and this messes up uh, industrial uh, processes, not just for E. coli, but for uh, here in Boston, the Vesivirus uh, messed up Genzyme, uh, both in Boston and in Europe for about a year. Um, and then there's dairy industry and so forth. So, and also I'd like to be multivirus resistant while we're at it. <coughs> So that's, uh, that's radical redesign where we will synthesize up to four million base pairs of new DNA with, with a computer helping us design it. There's another process called editing, which is even more popular because it allows it to handle even bigger genomes, less radical. We might change one base pair out of six billion in the human genome, but that one base pair can have a lot of uh, significance. And so here's some examples of a whole different set of uh, different ways of doing this. This is just eye candy. I'm not going to go through all these. I'm a crystallographer by training, so I love three-dimensional uh, objects like this. Um, but we, we, time does not permit it, and probably um, you've seen enough. But anyway, the red DNA, the blue RNA, and then the tan is protein. And we use the RNA, which is complementary to DNA in some of these cases, to do the heavy lifting of finding the needle in a haystack. So CRISPR-Cas9 is, is probably the one most talked about. Uh, they're all important, uh, but that particular one, um, some of them, the protein finds the needle in a haystack. And by needle in a haystack, I mean one base pair out of six billion in your genome. And, it does, and all of these work by random jumping around. I mean, it's, you, 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 th you we sometimes make metaphors to machines like a, a truck going down with GPS to the right address. That's not how these things work. They just, they go to the wrong place, they go to another wrong place, they'll go back to the first wrong place again, forgetting that they've been there. And they keep doing that until they find the right place and then they'll make, in this case, a double strand break. They'll make, a, they'll cut the DNA and then you'll fix it with your favorite DNA. So that, that one of the about a dozen different uh, proteins has really taken off in the last three years. So um, it was discovered in 87, a long time ago, but it was a kind of classic case of basic science where people were just looking around through the E. coli genome, the same E. coli that we're modifying today, and uh, it found something that looked kind of repetitive. And they said, oh, yet another repetitive junk piece of DNA. And then slowly it became evident there was protection against viruses, and then slowly it became evident that it was a protection against viruses that we could harness for doing something completely different from, from protecting us viruses, which is um, editing DNA. So it wasn't the original idea, which was junk DNA, and it wasn't the second idea, which was correct, which is what it does in nature, which is protects bacteria from viruses. Um, it, it was, we turned it into technology just three years ago, almost exactly. Um, and it was, and the first organism is my favorite model organism, which is human. Um, and, uh, uh, but Jacques Minaud seemed to like elephants. Uh, I also, that's my second favorite organism. Um, and he said, anything found to be true of E. coli must also be true of elephants. In this particular case, it was not exactly right. There's no CRISPR-Cas9 in elephants in the wild. 
but uh, so I had to add this, if not, we can make it so, which is kind of the, the mantra of synthetic biology. And so we now have elephant cells that have CRISPR, and we've made uh, 15 changes to move it towards being uh, a woolly mammoth. Um, so anyway, so that's the, it works in every organism that we've tried it in. In, in bacteria, it tends to be good at, at killing things, uh, but in all the rest, it's good for editing. Um, and, but it's not the only game in town. There are literally dozens of ways of, do, of modif genetically modifying humans. A lot of people say, should we genetically modify humans? And the news flash is, there are a lot of genetically modified humans. Um, and what it is, is they're in clinical, res clinical research trials. Um, there are 2,000 of them. Um, so it's a very significant fraction of the new drugs that are being developed. And one of them has been approved in Europe, of all places, where uh, they're not too big on genetically modified foods, but apparently they're big on genetically modified humans. And, uh, and uh, the bad news, from my viewpoint anyway, being cheap, is that this is the most expensive pharmaceutical in history. It's over a million dollars a dose. Fortunately, uh, you only have to take one dose uh, if, it's done, if it's done properly. Um, and so there are orphan drugs, there are orphan drug, drug act in the United States, and, uh, which where you might have uh, very rare diseases that it's hard to re recover the research and development costs. And so you might spend $100,000 a year on those, and if you're very lucky, uh, disease you might have died as a child, you can live for decades, but again, similar price. So that's, uh, uh, hopefully that will come down like that, that, that exponential I showed you going down from $3 billion to less than $1,000 for sequencing. It's not guaranteed to apply to other biotechs, but uh, if we have anything to do with it, this will come down as well. Now, that's all that sounds all well and good for rare diseases, but what about really common diseases um, like, you know, excessive stature and things like that? Um, but uh, the most common disease of all is, um, is this one, which is uh, age aging. Um, we're all going to die of it. Uh, in the United States, well, in developing countries in general, about 90% of people die of diseases that do not afflict 20-year-olds. It's not recognized as a disease by a lot of granting agencies. Um, but anyway, it, it, it probably is, and it probably is programmed in our DNA for a reason that will become evident, or one of the many arguments in the next slide. But there are people that li live way past 110 years, and they're called supercentenarians. And uh, this is a plot where it, it's been noted by zoologists uh, that th there is a relationship between your mass and your life. Uh, this is not intended to be on a personal level. So those of you that are not massive don't need to worry about it. But on an evolutionary time frame, um, you have uh, these animals. And so, but you still have outliers. Even once you take into account mass, you'll have these outliers that live much longer than the cloud, um, and these include, and we've contributed to the genomics of, of some of these creatures, like uh, the, on the far left there is a uh, naked mole rat, um, and it, it really is that ugly, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, at the top here, the longest lived mammal is uh, the bowhead whale. It also has the record for 
punching through ice. It can get through about a meter of ice because it has a very hard head and, uh, and uh, hard sort of macho behavior. And then I mentioned that there are supercentenarians. Uh, here is Jean Clamont on her 121st birthday. She wasn't done yet, by the way. Uh, she, she, she was like bicycling in, into her 108th year and she, she quit smoking uh, uh, after about 100 years of smoking. Uh, <laughs> Uh, not because she had lung cancer emphysema or anything, but because, uh, you know, it wasn't as trendy and popular as a uh, uh, century after she started. Uh, um, Wait, do you naked mole rats actually die a natural death, or do they get eaten? That's not a natural well, they, they are, they are a, They're actually a colonial mammal. They're like uh, bees, so they, ha that's, they have queens, and the queens tend to live longer, and they're very well protected. Uh, they, uh, there's a lot of weird things about them. I believe that they do tend to, there is a, you're I think alluding to an ecological theory, is that things that, that tend to have really good predators uh, tend to say, so what's the point? Uh, I'm just going to have a short life evolutionarily. And so things like birds that can escape their predators tend to live longer for a given size. And the naked mole rats do have a very spe special uh, lifestyle. but. Um, yeah. Anyway, they, they live about uh, ten times longer than uh, a mouse, about the same size. Um, so it would be, it'd be really great. Uh, so this is a, an argument that maybe this is programmed into your genes, uh, into the species genes, that a mouse dies around two and a half years, and a bowhead whale, even though it's had many more cell divisions, many more opportunities for getting cancer, uh, lives 200 years. And there is real research on aging reversal. Sometimes when I just say aging reversal without showing any slides, people just think I'm just talking about some science fiction story I read when I was a kid. But it, there, there are plenty of experiments. I'm just showing one category here. Amy Wagers and many other scientists in this field have shown that when you share blood between young and old mice, uh, you get remarkable restoration of multiple organ systems. So um, the skeletal and cardiac muscle, the, um, uh, the bones, and, and, and the neurons. And some of the factors involved have been found, but there are probably many more there. And these are just the ones that circulate through the blood. There are many others that stay localized in the tissue, and there are others that are localized within the cells. And so we're just beginning to scratch the surface on what you can do with aging reversal. Here's a completely different kind of experiment, and I could go on and on, but I'm just, this is going to be the last one on aging reversal. A kind of experiment that was inspired by uh, work from David Sinclair's lab, and another member of our departments of, in genetics at Harvard Medical School, where the mitochondria, this is kind of a cartoon of the mitochondria, uh, gets messed up uh, as a function of age, and uh, mice, since they are destined to age very rapidly, by 22 months, where we would still be babies, they've already, their mitochondria has already gone to pot, where it's down twofold in terms of their NAD. You can rescue this, kind of helping prove the theory, uh, with a small molecule that's the, the ex exactly the small molecules at risk here, one of the precursors to it, nicotinamide. But you can also fix it by uh, changing the genetic pathway to this. So it just depends on whether you like small molecule therapies or, or gene therapies. So we like gene therapies, so we'd 
David uh, did the nicotinamide, and we went to the TFAM, and, which uh, blocks the step. And TFAM is, is a transcription factor, it's a regulator, um, and we regulated the regulator, but we did it in an unusual way. So here's where the RNA starts, this little golden bar here, and uh, makes the TFAM. And normally it's regulated by cis regulatory elements, so the little places upstream from where it starts. And in, instead of using natural ones, we, we made new ones where the, the CRISPR that I talked about before, where the RNA allows you to program, it binds to the DNA, and about 20 bases long, 20 ACGs and Ts that you get to choose, or the computer gets to choose. And um, just to be on the safe side, since it's so cheap and so easy to use this CRISPR-Cas9, we just carpet bomb the whole region with new cis regulatory elements that, were, that, that, that the CRISPR would bind to, and then found one that, that would uh, help out uh, this aging protein, um, and found one here, which is uh, over 47-fold activation of this uh, protein um, due to the, this CRISPR-Cas9, which we've altered again what its purpose is. So remember, its original purpose was, was killing viruses by cutting them. Um, we changed it into an editing, which would cut and then allow us to put in new DNA to edit. And then this, this, new, this third uh, second uh, <coughs> engineering task is that we eliminate this ability to cut and we add an ability to activate um, uh, expression of genes or RNAs. So anyway, it, it does a great job. It, so this is the control and it activates about nine or tenfold. All we were going for was twofold. That's all it would take to reverse the aging of these, uh, these mice. So that's, that's two, this is Bobby Dadwar. He's a postdoctoral fellow in the lab. And you can see there's a lot of variation from site to site, and I think we understand that quite a bit better now um, relative to when we did this experiment. So we talked about writing genomes and cool things you can do having to do with aging. Um, there's some things that happen to you that even aging reversal can't fix, so you get actual damage to your organs uh, if you, you know, you can get hepatitis or cirrhosis of the liver, you can, uh, you know, gunshot wounds, uh, there are all sorts of things that you may or may not be at risk for. Um, and so we want to, we want to deal with how to, uh, to get organs. And there's, there's two essentially applications, the second and more obvious one that we'll get to is transplantation. But the, uh, another immediate application of our ability to edit DNA is to ask uh, about, um, to, to make model systems where you can determine cause and effect, whether a particular mutation is causing a disease. You can, so you can remove uh, unknowns from uh, our growing uh, list of, of both knowns and unknowns we get as we sequence more and more gen genomes. And we can also use it for testing new therapies. So if we can make two cell lines which differ by only one base pair. So here's an example where this child has uh, Barth syndrome, um, which was initially unknown, and then after uh, the, our collaborating team in uh, Bill Poo's lab uh, sequenced this, the hypothesis was that in the TAS gene on the X chromosome, so boys have a, many disadvantages, but in this particular case, they only have one X chromosome. And if it's moving, missing this G, then, uh, then you have uh, the hypothesis, the, 
was that that would be sufficient to cause us disease. But to prove the cause and effect, we, we wanted to make two stem cell lines which differ by just that one gene. And so we did that using CRISPR. And uh, PGP1, I mentioned earlier, I showed that, that collection of people that meet every year on DNA Day. That's the Personal Genome Project. And they're given numbers as they re get recruited. And, and the first one was uh, decided by the IRB, should be someone with skin in the game, uh, which is me, uh, to, so that I would be eating my own dog food and uh, experiencing the, uh, this uh, uh, project. And, and actually one of the advantages of having me on the front lines uh, was that our original skin biopsy was uh, uh, not, not good. Uh, you can ask me in the questions about details, but it was, it was not suitable for PGP number two. Um, tested out on PGP one and we vetoed it until we found a better way. And so now, now the skin punch biopsy is very nice. And uh, anyway, with that skin punch biopsy, we got fibroblasts from my skin and then um, reprogrammed them into uh, stem cells and then added this Cas9, this programmable nuclease, and then made three different cell lines. One is the control that really is unaltered, one that is simulating this syndrome by removing that G, and then one where we didn't put in the repair oligos, so we didn't really direct the editing, it just made a mess, and in this case the mess it made was it created eight base pairs out of thin air, uh, just made them up, um, and that's called non-homologous injoining. It's, but it could have been anything, could have been deletion, could have been insertion of any size. Anyway, so then we compared these three uh, where we can make an organ. Uh, we can make an organ, um, um, sometimes called an organoid because it's not a perfect copy of uh, an organ. This is an organoid that represents the, the cardiac muscle. And that's what was affected in this, uh, ch these children. Um, but here you can see that this is made from, remember from my skin cells been reprogrammed. It makes this beautiful repeating structure of the, of the sarcomere organization of cardiac muscle and it, uh, it contracts, uh, I'm not going to show you the movie, but it, it contracts uh, just like cardiac muscle will spontaneously. And then this is the highly disordered structure that you get by changing one G in the genome of, of my stem cells before we turn it into cardiac muscle. And you can sh show that this really is the gene and involved the TAS gene on the X chromosome by replacing it uh, with a modified messenger RNA and you can get rest restoration of the structure, the biochemistry and the contractile function. This was done in collaboration with Kit Parker's group who have been pioneers in developing these organoids for cardiac muscle. George, how many, uh, how many kilograms of George Church cells now exist in the world? I, I, I don't know. It would be a, a milestone when there's and more. It's just more. a coincidence that this happens to make you immortal, too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I think this is a point where Woody Allen would say, I don't want to be immortal through my stem cells. I want to actually live a long time. But anyway, so a, a completely different kind of organoid that we're interested in is having to do with the brain. Um, and uh, making, in particular, the hippocampus, which is one of the uh, seats of our long-term memory, and it's one of the first things that fails when we go into cognitive decline in Alzheimer's. And so Alex Ng, who's a graduate student here, has, 
has come up with a, a wonderful library, a collection of all the uh, regulatory proteins, all the transcription regulatory proteins in the human genome, and then uh, is screening them for factors that will help us make all the cells of the hippocampus. And here's a really remarkable experiment where we took PGP1 stem cells and uh, added one or two of these transcription factors from the library, which has 1,600, and in merely four days at at greater than 98% efficiency, the entire culture will change from these bead-like uh, clustered stem cells, that like a big pig pile, into these nice spread out bipolar neurons. They have exactly one process coming out at each end. So they're very, very reproducible stereotyped type of neuron that produces uh, glutamate and acetylcholine. And, it, and it's just like clockwork, they, they all convert. Um, there was no such protocol prior to this. And then he went on to add additional factors to get them, instead of having two processes, to have multiple processes, very much like the pyramidal neurons in the hippocampus. And, and he's getting better and better at this. Now here's an experiment that my uh, colleague in my department, Bruce Yankner, did, and we're collaborating on a grant on this. Uh, but, he, but I mean, it was really, uh, just blew me away that they, that they were bold enough to try this because when I th had been thinking about developing organoids in the lab, I, I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, that we could do things in four days that normally would take 80 days. Um, but it didn't occur to me that I, we could do in four days what you could do in 80 years, which is late onset Alzheimer's. But you can take patients that have a late onset Alzheimer's and you can take age match control, same age, more or less the same gender, more or less the same socioeconomic. You, you basically are good controls, and you establish stem cell lines for them, just like you did, we did for me and many other people in Personal Genome Project. You establish stem cell lines, and you look at their RNA profile. You look at all the RNAs in there, uh, in these cells, and they look the same. So someone, uh, a whole bunch of patients that have laid out says Alzheimer's, and the controls, they all have the same stem cells. You then reprogram them to neuronal precursors. You don't have to take them all the way to, to hippocampal cells, just near, and suddenly they're, they're radically different. So you can see that there's something happening that is very characteristic of late onset Alzheimer's that is actually as more predictive than the genetics alone that is, and we haven't sorted this out, but it's an incredible tool now because, because we can now reproducibly make something that is indicative of, of Alzheimer's. Um, we can now uh, study the genetics. We can essentially do genetics on it. This would be um, not only unethical to do this in humans, but it would be very long experiment to do this in humans. Uh, so finding these really early biomarkers is amazing. So that's another thing you can do with these organoids. We helped start the, the Brain Initiative a few years ago, and, uh, and uh, you know, just suffice it to say is that we have the ABCDE of, uh, of this Brain Initiative, which is we're measuring activity, the behavior, so it actually what happens, um, what firing pattern is happening in response to a particular behavior or uh, we're studying the visual cortex, for example, and they, they watch videos, and, uh, and you can measure the, the, uh, uh, the, behavior, the activity of the cells uh, real time. 
with calcium imaging. And then we can do all these other things uh, uh, using uh, advanced microscopy that we developed called fluorescent in C2 sequencing. So the other, I mentioned there were two applications of the organoids. The other one is transplantation. And for that we have multiple, we can either make them the way we, that we have been talking about, making them from human stem cells and allowing developmental biology to make to nudge it in a particular direction to make neurons or maybe even whole hippocampus or, but it's, it's hard, it's, it's still an early field and we don't know how to make a kidney by either 3D printing nor by developmental biology from human stem cells alone. But we do know how to make a pig kidney um, that, that might look like a human. Um, and in fact, uh, almost every, essentially every organ transplant that you can do with a human, there is a corresponding organ that is very compatible in size and physiology to, to human in pigs. Um, and, uh, and so this has been talked about for uh, over two decades and it kind of came to a uh, rapid stop uh, about 15 years ago when the FDA and other um, ethicists and so forth started worrying about the fact that the pigs, they, well they discovered that the pigs produce viruses and they're not viruses that the pigs have been infected with, they're viruses that the pigs carry around in their genome from birth, as do we all, all, all mammals, uh, different, different viruses of different mammals. Anyway, these viruses have been shown to go from pigs to human cells and infect human cells and so it was considered that particularly bad idea for immune suppressed patients that are suppressed so that they won't reject the organ um, to be, they would become an incubator for these pig viruses that can then um, emerge with new properties that might be much worse. They've, they, they, may, they may have evolved to live in harmony with the pig but not with humans. And so just like this could be like swine flu or Ebola or HIV or various things that came from the animal kingdom. So anyway, that kind of put a damper on the whole party 15 years ago. Um, fast forward to CRISPR again, the, the, one of the heroes today. Um, we decided to uh, just give it a crack at getting, finding out how many viruses we actually had to get rid of that were in the genome of the pig and take care of all of them at once. Now to put this in perspective, a typical genome engineering goal around the time we did this and to in general uh, for years has been one or two or maybe three genes at once. We decided to take out all 62 at once and uh, um, and, and CRISPR is, uh, you know, that's its original task in bacteria but here we put it into pig and sure enough in 14 days of tissue culture, not really us working for 14 days other than changing the media, um, got rid of all 62 viruses and you'll see more of that in just a moment. Uh, you should note that many of these numbers are much larger than the number of actual transplants are done. These are people that could benefit from transplants. There's a big difference and it's kind of swept under the rug a little bit because there's kind of standard of care where a lot of people are denied transplants. They don't, they're not even considered uh, for because of various uh, risk factors. But that would probably vanish if there were a, a, a large supply. Anyway, we characterized, uh, we sequenced the pig genome and find all the, the pig endogenous retroviruses. By the way, I didn't come up with that acronym. Um, 
and, and then eliminated them. That's what that data there says. So we can also engineer ecosystems. This is wonderful collaboration where uh, Flaminia Cataruccia at the Harvard School of Public Health and I share a graduate student, uh, Andy Smidler, who's amazing, and uh, Kevin Esfeld was a postdoctoral fellow at the Wies Institute uh, working with us, now has his own lab at MIT. Anyway, we, we uh, did something that's unusual in biology and it kind of reflects the theme that I'm trying to develop here tonight about being thoughtful uh, about the, the ethics and the unintended consequences of having broad conversations with the, with the public at large, which is before we did any experiments, we published um, a, pa a paper describing gene drives that use CRISPR. And gene drives were uh, found in the 70s, actually by uh, the first one I knew of was from Bernard Dujon, who was one of my uh, predoctoral mentors. Um, and uh, he found it in yeast. And then later, Austin Burke suggested they could be used as a tool, again, making the transition from biological observation, pure science, to a tool. He suggested this in 2003, but basically it's been hard to do anything about it in the last 13 years. Un but we thought that changing to CRISPR might change this. And the idea behind gene drives is that in normal inheritance, you might put a few mosquitoes out in a population, indicated here in blue. They're not actually blue, but, you know, bear with me. Uh, that for cartoon, the few of them in the population will eventually get, uh, they will maintain their number, they will be diluted out, and eventually just by random luck, they will die off um, in, when they're surrounded by trillions of the gray normal mosquitoes. Uh, it's 50% of the offspring get, in principle, get the inheritance, but when you're getting, having random loss um, due to disease and predation, they eventually get lost. That's just the way population genetics works. But with the gene drive, all of the offspring inherit the disease, uh, sorry, the gene drive, and the gene drive confers on them uh, this propagation ability where the gene drive is like a bit of selfish DNA, but it's very precise selfish DNA. It only works in one place in the genome, and each incoming uh, chromosome that comes from the, from the other parent gets converted in a certain sense, uh, proselytized and converted, and, and so 100% of the offspring have the gene drive and whatever package you carry, the, the gene drive carries. One of the packages you might want would be one that makes it re resistant to malaria. Um, so it doesn't hurt the mosquito to become resistant to malaria. In fact, it might help it a little bit, not, well, it's basically neutral to slightly deleterious. But it, uh, but it is terrific for, for the humans. And this will then spread exponentially and they have so many offspring, hundreds of offspring, um, many cycles per month uh, or per year, uh, a couple of cycles per month, so that this thing could spread uh, throughout sub-Saharan Africa in a very small number of seasons. And it's not just uh, malaria, but roundworms, Lyme disease, dengue, anything that's carried by, um, that is either itself a sexual species or is transmitted by one as well as invasive species, which turn out to be one of the major causes of extinction in the world, are invasive species, especially the ones on islands. So here's the example of malaria and Lyme disease. They have these cycles that involve not just humans and the microorganism, but uh, typically other animals. In the case of Lyme disease, probably the best target is not the deer, even though something called deer ticks, it's the white-footed mouse, and in the case of malaria, it's the, it's the Anopheles gambii mosquito and a few other 
related mosquitoes. And to, to test, so we, we published a paper describing the risks, the benefits, various ways that you can make it safer, including reversal drives. We felt that any good technology is reversible in some sense. Uh, in principle, the cell phone is reversible, although I, I would uh, challenge you to actually reverse that. Um, but with this, uh, and genetics is reversible in the laboratory. If you make it a G to an A, you can make it back. But if you release it in the population, it becomes very difficult. But we came up with reversal drives, and we tested both the drive and the reversal. I'm just showing the drive here. In yeast, when you, uh, when you mate them, you get four offspring, in a certain sense, reproducibly in a tetrad. And usually it's 50-50, white to red. But with the gene drive, you can see each of these sets of four offspring, are, they're all red. So the gene drive is working at close to 100% efficiency, not just in the lab strains, but a whole phylogenetic tree of wild strains of yeast. And now it not only, so that was the first gene drive that really worked, was CRISPR gene drive. And now there are gene drives in four different organisms, two mosquitoes, uh, fruit flies, and uh, in yeast. So um, we're almost done here. Hope you've been storing up your questions. This is that list that I was talking about. Um, uh, I've tried to not be too much of an enthusiast here. Maybe I gave you a mixed message. Uh, maybe I sounded enthusiastic. I am about some of this. Um, there are things like genetically modified organisms. Um, you know, what's, what's the deal there? Why is that? Uh, why are so many people opposed to those? Why are we spending so much time labeling them? Um, there's questions about equality. Um, how do we, if we, how to get this technology so that it's affordable? I've addressed that a little bit. Um, animal rights—they love it whenever we do experiments on humans. Uh, so I showed you some ways of doing experiments on humans that are ethical. Human embryonic stem cells—when you do, you know, please them by working on humans. Better not be embryos. And so one of the solutions of human embryonic stem cells was these adult-derived pluripotent stem cells. So they came from my arm rather than from some unsuspecting embryo. Talked about how xenotransplants were unsafe, and now they're, we've solved the viral problem. Um, I'm going to give you the answers here. Um, so what happened with robot wars, uh, when we started synthetic biology, we wanted, we, uh, we meaning uh, Rob Knight and Drew Indy and others, uh, started a little uh, competition, which we, were, we participated in the first year um, and, and have supported ever since, which was called International Genetically Engineered Machines. And the, and the idea was to get undergraduates and some high school students to make uh, uh, new organisms and to think about them as machine parts that were interchangeable like, and to start thinking about engineering biology the way you think about other kinds of engineering disciplines. But they had a, we had a choice as to whether we were going to emulate uh, our robot wars uh, colleagues uh, where, where the competitions for, for high school and, and college might be to make uh, a robot who could kill another robot in an in a arena. And we thought that that was not the best uh, metaphor or analogy for uh, biohacking uh, um, because we didn't want to encourage a culture of uh, biowarfare. And in contrast, we now include, or have included since pretty early on, a human practices criteria, which means that each poster and each uh, project 
for this is now international and hundreds of teams around the world, um, they include something about the ethical, legal, and social components of, um, of synthetic biology. And uh, 2004, this lawyers in synthetic DNA, my, we, we were in, inventing a, uh, a way to make synthetic DNA that was about 10,000 times cheaper, and it struck me that that would be, we were on the eve of something, just like the gene drives that we should engage the public, uh, or at least uh, companies that were manufacturing DNA with this. And it was so greatly enabling that I went and asked the companies if they could check their sequences that are coming in on the internet uh, to see if anybody's ordering smallpox or 1918 flu or something like that, um, just because they might not want to synthesize that for somebody else that they don't know. And the, the lawyers, or the scientists said that the lawyers said that, um, that, they, they, that the companies couldn't do that because it would uh, expose them to risk because if they look at their customers' orders, then they're responsible for the customers' orders. And also, it's an invasion of the privacy of their customers, even if their customers are ordering smallpox. Uh, and so I had a little uphill battle for a while. In 2004, I put out a white paper that I distributed all over the place to government agencies and, so, and to these companies. And within a few years, uh, by 2008, there were major consor international consortia of the top DNA synthesis companies to actually check their orders with computers against sort of the, the nasty uh, organism list um, and toxin list. So that's now pretty standard practice. And there are a few laws as well. Um, <clears throat> I mentioned the, the uh, didn't mention well enough, the issue of sharing. Um, it what, when, when I talked about the Personal Genome Project at PGET, it wasn't just about educating them and making sure they knew what they were getting into. It's also that if you don't properly uh, consent them and you try to share, uh, you're, you're essentially making a promise that you can't keep. You're saying that, it's, that the data won't escape in spite of the fact that not only WikiLeaks but hundreds of other medical data have escaped, even in settings, not just research settings, but in hospital settings where attached to it is all your social security information, your mother's maiden name, all this kind of stuff, which are ongoing risks to you for the rest of your life as long as people keep using those as your um, uh, security codes. Anyway, so we, we did it uh, in, a, in a different way where we, we told them in advance that we would be sharing the data and it would be completely separate from the hospital medical records, but it could be a, a complete copy of it where we would scrub the information that would be risky to you in a financial sense, but, uh, but stick to things that were medical and, uh, and biological. Another uh, ethical issue uh, was um, I mentioned that they published the smallpox and the 1918 flu virus. They also published an experiment, not just uh, a natural piece of DNA, but an unnatural um, nucleic acid uh, where you gain function, where you make uh, flu viruses which are better at spreading um, and uh, more, more dangerous, and, and that was published. And that was published without, uh, it wasn't something where, with, like with the gene drives, where we talked about it before we did it. They, basically they, it was submitted to a, to a journal. They had already done the research, they had already gotten the grants and so forth, 
to do this uh, fairly dangerous uh, thing. And there was a great deal of discussion as to whether that should be published or not. It's very hard to stop something from being widely distributed once you've done the experiment. So that was published. Um, there's a lot of discussion about uh, CRISPR with, 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 and various other patents and germline manipulation. Maybe we can leave that for the uh, discussion. Um, I mentioned this overpopulation issues, um, and my little arrow points to my personal solution, which is sending us all into space, or a significant fraction of us. Um, and they may sound uh, um, expensive, but, but actually they're, they're, uh, the cost, uh, even for rockets, is, is affordable for many of the people uh, in developed nations, and there are orders of magnitude less uh, cost uh, if you just do the, the physics, uh, there are more uh, economical ways to, to send people into space. But there's this issue of uh, biology. It's often neglected. Uh, why it is, uh, it's not entirely evident, but there's, there's risk of space radiation. There's osteoporosis that occurs at low gravity. Um, even once you arrive in Mars, it's 38% Earth gravity. And so we have this, this topic of space genetics, which the PGN staff has noticed is a big icebreaker and changes the conversation when you're getting kind of all, all uptight about eugenics and, and, uh, and any kind of human genetics. The conversation changes in interesting ways when you talk about the needs of people when they go out into space. And so I'm just going to end on a couple of slides from that. This is uh, our Space Genetics Initiative. Ting Wu is the director of this. Um, and uh, some of the things that we're interested in, I've already mentioned, is gra gravity and osteoporosis. There's all sorts of nerve behavioral challenges, radiation in the microbiome. And, and one of the questions that I, that I think is interesting, amusing, is we're probably not going to take everything with us. We're not, this is not going to be like Noah's Ark, uh, where we take the bowhead whale, as much as I love it, and the, the giant uh, redwoods. Um, and uh, probably, hopefully not going to bring smallpox and H1N1 uh, and all the rest of the pathogens with us, although we might. But these are all decisions that have to be made. We could bring a, a bowhead whale cell and a redwood cell and smallpox, but it's a decision to be made what's, what's going to be, what we're going to bring with us and whatnot. So these are, these are uh, I have a, a much longer list of uh, interesting, uh, rare, or in some cases synthetic, uh, genes, variants that can uh, be thought of differently than most, most rare uh, gene variants you talk about are um, highly uh, deleterious. They're rare because they're not good for you. They're not good for the human race. Uh, but there are others that are rare that have actually interesting um, benefits. Nothing is perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect human, probably. But, uh, but there are things that for particular tasks are interesting. So for example, there's some that make extra strong bones. Have you ever seen Bruce Willis in uh, uh, Unbreakable? Uh, he had this genetic uh, variant, probably. Um, there, uh, myostatin double null, this mean minus over minus, meaning miss missing both copies of this highly conserved gene, results in uh, basically babies coming out looking like uh, Schwarzenegger at his prime. Um, there are alleles that make you insensitive to pain without the opiate dopey feeling, the, the general anesthesia or local anesthesia. 
you're literally uh, in sensitive pain. It has the downside that the kids will like chew on their tongue and things like that. Uh, but uh, if this could be harnessed so that you could turn it on and off in particular places, it might be a better uh, anesthesia. And the list goes on and on. There's various uh, virus resistances. You're double null for CCR5. And this is actually now a gene therapy. You can become resistant to HIV. So in a way, these, some of these things are already making it into genetically modified humans and are a kind of augmentation. That is to say, they are at an advantage relative to most people on the planet in that they're resistant to HIV. We actually have two family members that are resistant to norovirus due to the double null in their FUT gene. See, don't you think you should have your genome sequenced? <laughs> uh, but you probably know whether you're norovirus resistant or not. Um, and anyway, the list goes on, and we could talk about this in more detail. There are genes that cause radiation resistance. You can improve it thousands fold. Uh, this uh, with as little as four mutations, not in humans yet. Um, and this is this, I'm just going to end on this slide, uh, which is um, a lot, there's a lot of talk about how important the microbiome is, and it is, it is quite important. There are immunological consequences if you are completely germ-free, but there are many germ-free animals. Um, historically, going back to the 1920s, were chickens and goats, but many rodents and even humans have been germ-free, as you know, but basically free of all viruses and microorganisms. And that's an option for our little ark that we send off into space. And you could imagine that if we get rid of germs and, and anesthesia, you, you don't need this big operating theater. You could operate on yourself uh, without washing your hands. So anyway, I'm just going to leave it on this slide, and hopefully there's some time for uh, discussion. Thank you. Yes? With the example of the blood sharing between the mice? Yeah. Like what, with the example of the blood sharing between the mice, like what is the definition of young blood, and what are some hypotheses about the mechanism that's Well, so I, sh I showed you with the mitochondria. With mice, at six months, they have normal mitochondrial function, and by 22 months, they're, it's shot by a factor of two. Um, that's the kind of age differential that you're using in that case. Um, and then you can go through the blood, and you can purify different fractions of it and find and assay this fraction by injecting them into the older mouse and then looking for reversal. Reversal is a better paradigm, I think, for science uh, because, well, longevity takes a long time. You know, it might take five years to do the experiment for even for a long-lived rodent. Um, but re reversal you can, in principle, do in weeks. So it's things like gripping and reaction time and cognition and things like that. Back there. Hi, I'm just wondering if you'd like to comment on uh, some of the kind of con the discoveries that are made due to the constraints put on you from society. So, say um, there is a say animal rights um, might force you to take a sample from your <laughs> yourself rather yeah. than an animal and. What kind of um, effect that has had on the directions that you yourself and others have made? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I actually have seen relative, uh, almost no evidence that government regulations and other societal forces 
have had that have interfered with research. And in some way, every source of inspiration, whether it's art or ethical challenge, causes some of us to be more creative. It, it's just, it's, we need inspiration, and this is a source. Um, in fact, we have an ethicist and an artist in our laboratory uh, to help us with that inspiration. But, so I think that uh, it wasn't necessarily direct, I mean, there's not a direct cause and, ref and effect relationship between animal rights and embryo rights and some of the breakthroughs, but they certainly like it when, when you report back to them and tell them that this is the way it is, things are going their way. Um, but it's an it's a intricate dance. Uh, and, and people say, well, you know, uh, um, you know, if we have a moratorium, isn't that going to slow down research? You know, I've, I've uh, done research in the middle of moratoria uh, where you do whatever is allowed. And I, it's been my experience that everything goes faster. Um, there's, there's often more research money. Of a new, you know, when there was a moratorium on stem cells, California and Massachusetts just went crazy. I mean, $3 billion uh, of money that probably would not have been there otherwise. Um, during the recombinant DNA moratorium, we had the best labs uh, in the world were the ones that were outfitted to hit the guide, the, meet the guidelines for safety for recombinant DNA. Although there was really, as it turns out, with hindsight, there was no, nothing unsafe that we were doing at the time. Yeah. You mentioned that you have an artist uh, yes. in your lab? Yes, Joe Davis, right over there. Uh, can yeah. you tell me what, tell me more about the role? Yeah, well, we have, I accuse him of being a scientist occasionally, oh. yeah. He is, he is awfully well read in, in a variety of mm -hmm. sciences. Uh, mm -hmm. But what role does he, yeah. yeah. Well, he's, he's actually, I should let him uh, come up here, but uh, he's played a big role both at MIT and Harvard for decades, uh, Alex Rich's lab, which is uh, uh, an amazing uh, molecular biology lab. Um, but he's uh, done things ranging. He's done uh, things ranging from communicating with extraterrestrials uh, to he was one of the first people to use DNA to encode uh, digital information. In that case, a, a, a five by seven black and white image, um, which inspired us later. I didn't mention it uh, to uh, encode a book and now a movie into DNA. So it's actually becoming an industry. Um, he's not getting a cut of that. That's a, I think that's his definition of being an artist. <laughs> I'll, I'll, tr I'll, I'll try to give him a cut somehow. Uh, but, but that was in 1986. That was real vision. Um, and uh, I've done other things. That, he's done many other things. There's a, there's a feature-length movie about him, Heaven and Earth and Joe Davis, if you want to learn more about it. Not suitable for work, however. <laughs> Yes. I'm curious about the gene drive. Um, so for malaria, for instance, it seems like it's probably going to be most effective in Africa right now. So I'm curious, who are the parties and organizations that you are trying to convince? Is it some countries or organizations in other nations? Or who should yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think we have to be careful of the word convince. I mean, you want, you want to make sure everybody is well educated on all the risks and benefits, and then they convince us to do something for them. 
Um, but there is a great deal of enthusiasm, as I understand it, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, just as there is in all the communities that are affected by Lyme disease, a much less deadly but still uh, big disease in the United States. Um, I mean, we should be practicing this not just in a colonial sense, but also at home. Zika virus is another one, um, dengue fever. Uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm. The Gates Foundation will probably support it. Right now, there are genetically modified mosquitoes already in use in many countries. Um, they're typically a sterile male method, uh, which is not, which has the advantage that it, it quickly drops the mosquito population, maybe 80, 90 percent, but they will rebound eventually. Good business model, because it means you have to keep coming back with more sterile male mosquitoes. Um, but it's not necessarily the long-term solution. The long-term solution requires much more you know, thoughtful uh, pre preparation to make sure that if you make the mosquito species extinct that it didn't have some other benefit, like, for example, the males are pollinators, unlike the females who are blood-sucking uh, <laughs> evil <laughs> creatures. Uh, but uh, the... Um, there's a lot of ecology known for the malaria mosquito, and there's no known other species that's dependent upon them. But we need to really make sure we're sure about them. Or we don't have to make them extinct. We can just go for making them malaria resistant. Um, so we've been working on ways, and we need to test all the reversal drives and so forth. But I think, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm, but it has to be international. Because unlike vaccines, where people can say, not for my family, or not for my country, or for my um, congregation, um, mosquitoes don't respect uh, international boundaries, and so you probably need UN-level agreements. Right, we're going to take, take one more question. Way back there. I'll be around a little afterwards if, if you happen to miss your question. So clearly you see uh, human genome sequencing as a, as a valuable technology that more people in this audience should potentially adopt. Uh, I guess the question is, with Portable blood banking and tissue banking. I'm curious if you if you see value in those technologies, or if you think they're just a, something in search for a need. And well, so uh, I didn't show it, but like the Beery twins, there's another poster child um, named Nick Volker, and uh, in that case, uh, he benefited from uh, cord blood. Um, from his, uh, uh, from a suitable donor. And there are other cases where children have been born to family, specifically conceived and, uh, and checked by IVF to have, to be uh, histocompatible, meaning that they're tissue compatible and not be affected by a disease. Um, and then the, their cord blood has been used. So there, so there, there are some real therapies that are, that are based on this. I'm not sure that banking things, uh, what we're doing is we're getting much better at universal donors. So we now have uh, universal donor cancer therapies where you'll use a combination of technology called CAR-T uh, uh, for chimeric antigen receptor and CRISPR to engineer kind of universal donor T cells that will work in almost any person because you've engineered the donor to, to not uh, do grass versus host or host versus graft. Now before you really had to match people very perfectly because you couldn't engineer the, the, the donor, but now you can. 
and that's happening. That's, there's, they're actually kids getting cured of childhood leukemia with that technology. So I think that's gonna reduce the need. The stem cells that we use, the stem cells I showed, are probably not great starting points. We can make organs in a lab, but, they're, but they're, uh, there's some concern that they're transformed in a, in a way that could result in cancer. So that all of these things need to be optimized and made uh, tested in clinical trials before you just ramp them out. A lot of stem cell clinics are, uh, this isn't exactly your question, but it's related to your question. A lot of stem cell clinics are not actually meeting normal standards for medical. And the reason they escape is the Food and Drug Administration covers mainly drugs, therapies, and medical devices. They don't cover medical practice. So I come up with a better way of you know, measure, you know, measuring and, and uh, treating you uh, that, that if it doesn't involve drugs or medical devices, that's not covered by the FDA. And that includes, unfortunately, stem cells so far. That may change. Okay, yeah. well, let's uh, have a big round of applause. Thank you.